You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1992 film, Unforgiven. So this film takes place in the West, particularly Wyoming, in 1880. At the beginning of the film, we see uh, at a brothel in the small town... These two cowboys come in. One of them has an altercation with one of the prostitutes. And in anger, he grabs a knife and brutally cuts her face. The guy who runs the brothel captures them, ties them up, takes them to the sheriff, a man named Little Bill. And originally he is going to whip them as punishment, but instead he tells them to give up. They had a number of horses. He says, you give up four, you give up three, and you give them to the owner of the brothel, and then he lets them go. Yeah, This angers the prostitutes. They do not think it is proper justice. And so they put a $1,000 bounty to kill both of those cowboys. Word spreads around, and then we tough outlaw kid named the Schofield Kid finds a man named William Money. Now, in the opening credits, we learned that Money was a deadly outlaw. He committed banks. He, he was notorious for killing women and children. But somewhere along the line, he met this woman, this deeply religious woman. They married. They had kids. And during that time, he gave up the life of being this outlaw. And we see him later. He's a pig farmer. He's taking care of a boy and a girl. But you can tell he's not very good at it. He falls down a lot. He's getting up there in age. And originally when they offer him the bounty on these two guys, he turns the kid down. But later on, he decides to take it. But before he takes it, he meets an old patriot of his, Ned Logan. And they decide to join up with the Schofield kid and go on this to collect the bounty. No, but since word has been spreading around on this bounty... Another uh, famous gunfighter named English Bob. He comes into town very great, uh, swaggeringly. He brags. He's talk, talk, brags about his British heritage. I believe 1880. He's talking about. I believe the uh, assassination of Garfield, uh, President Garfield, happened at that time. So he's sort of ribbing at the fact that you know in Britain they would never assassinate a royal a king or a queen but you know oh a president you do it all the time so he's laughing and he's very bragging about his past he famously and he's got this writer along with him um Beauchamp yes and Beauchamp is writing his biography and Beauchamp's completely living it up and but when he goes into town he, he, he ignores the no uh, firearms ordinance within the town limits. Yeah. And that brings um, Little Bill, played by Gene Hackman, in. Little Bill knows English Bob. And in front of everybody, he takes his guns, embarrasses him, and then beats him up, throws him in jail, along with Beauchamp. And then at that time, Little, he, Little Bill tells Beauchamp, 
that this famous gunfight that uh, English Bob was in was nowhere near as glorious as it's as he's making it out in his biography. That uh, English Bob was the one that instigated the fight. He shot him, missed him numerous times, and it was only because the other guy accidentally shot his own um, hands off or wounded foot. his foot. Shot his own foot, but also wounded his hand so he couldn't even fire a gun. That is when he was able to shoot him. Yeah. Very uh, cold-blooded, so yes. nowhere near as glorious as he's making out to be. And also and also not not for the uh, uh, purpose that Beauchamp had been told and was writing. Yeah, it was by, like the protect uh, a woman's, uh, uh, woman's uh, respect or something, her, but in reality her, her virtue. he was... But it yeah. was really simply because he was jealous because the yeah, other guy he, was hitting on the woman he, he was yeah, hitting he on. was a spurned lover. Yeah, yeah. and... Eventually, little Bill sends him on a stagecoach out of town alone because Beauchamp decides to stay with little Bill. And now little Bill's telling Beauchamp about his stories as an outlaw. And around this time, the uh, the three men, uh, Schofield, Kid, Ned, and William, make it into town. Uh, William's getting sick, and he's not, it's, you can tell he's sort of unsure about doing the job. And one day he comes in on a rainy night. He enters the town. Uh, both Ned and the Schofield kid go up and visit one of the prostitutes. So they're not there. But little Bill harasses money and beats him up and sort of throws him out. Then everybody's sort of doubting at this point that if he's really up to the job. But after he recuperates, they go on the they hunt down one of the guys. And Ned's trying to shoot him because Ned was a famous sharpshooter. Yeah. But he can't. He just he can't fire the gun anymore. He can't bring himself to do it. Yeah. yeah. So that. But this time, um, Will finally gets it up. He is able to get the rifle. He wounds him mortally in the uh, stomach, but he screams out in pain. That gets one of the guys, and then they hunt down. By that time, there's a posse out, and at this time, um, Ned Logan is captured because he wants to leave. He doesn't want any more to do with it. But on his way out. Little Bill captures him, tortures him, and gets him to tell what William Money is. And around that same time, they're not aware yet, but the Schofield kid and Will hunt down the other guy, the one who did the actual act of assaulting the prostitute, hunt him down. They kill him. Their job is done. They're about to go on their way, but one of the women who gives him the money tells him that what happened to Ned Logan and while he's doing that, because William Money was always talks about when he did these horrible deeds as an outlaw, he was drunk. Apparently he's not touched a drop since, but once he finds out what's going on and she's repeating the stories heard about William Money that Ned was telling Little Bill, he starts drinking again. And even though the Schofield did, did the killing, Schofield Kid did the killing, and he's bragged about other people he's killed, he's done. Yeah, lied that that was the only person he's ever killed. Yeah. He doesn't want any more to do with this. Right. William Money goes into town, and Ned's dead now. He's been tortured. He's been killed, and his body's uh, displayed on a... On a um, in, in a coffin. In a coffin outside, and it's saying, this is what we do with assassins around here. Eventually, William Money comes into the bar where everyone is. He kills the owner of the brothel where they tortured Ned yeah. Logan, and yeah. eventually he kills all the other um, lawmen and eventually Little Bill, and he rides out of town. That's and he threatens to kill anybody else if they come after him, and telling he's telling everybody about the horrible things he's done. Yeah. And eventually, at the end, he, we see him come back home, and then there at the very we see an aftertext. Apparently, 
they were um, after this, he took his kids, left somewhere supposedly in San Francisco, and ran like a dry cleaning or dry goods store. Yes. But um, the, his mother-in-law visited the grave of his wife, and there is still they're saying nobody ever really wondered why why she chose to marry him because she she could have had anybody she wanted, but she chose this man, a notorious killer and outlaw. Yeah. And that's the end of this movie and. This won Best Picture in 1992. Eastwood won Best Director, nominated for Best Actor, but didn't win. And I got this is definitely one of his best films, as not only as a director but as an actor. I agree with that, and uh, it's remarkable and how well uh, uh, constructed uh, the film is. It, it, keeping in mind uh, Eastwood's uh, method method in directing, he always. Uh, does maybe a maximum of three takes, but usually just mm-hmm. one or two. And he says, you know, let's just get this done, get it done efficiently. He's He's got that actor's he's point of view. He's anti-Kubrick. Yeah. Somebody like Kubrick would take 127 times to shoot one scene. Yeah. You know, Hanks was talking about when he was working with him on Sully, they would do one or two takes, and he would say, that's enough of that. Yeah. Move on to another scene. And another guy was telling him, working with on Gran Torino, his DP, who's, I forget his name, but he's worked with him on a lot of his movies. He said, hey, Clint, why don't we do another take here? We move the camera here. It might be better. And Clint would just say, nope, we move on. Yeah. And that's usually what he does. I saw an interesting story about this particular film. Saul Rabinick, who plays uh, uh, Beauchamp, actually approached him about that last shootout scene, right? And said, look, I... I think we need to do a third take on this. And he was thinking there's no way Eastwood's going to say yes to this. But he said, okay, we'll do a third take. But if it ends up being the one that's included in the film, you're not getting credit for it. (laughs) And apparently it was the take that was included in that, uh, in the final version. Um, But yeah, it's, it's always very tightly constructed. Things move along quite well. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the grittiness and emotion always come through and it is remarkable uh given the rapidity with which he can shoot a film that he is able and typically his films are successful in this way um able to get 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 across the complexity of the uh, themes and 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 the stories in doing this um the color and tone of the film has a the film of a noir film or the feel of a noir film uh, yes, it's in color, but they're kind of muted, and there's almost a grayness to the, to the uh, at least the scenes in the town. Uh, and it's interesting the way they're contrasted with the scenes out there in the great wide open. They, they apparently filmed this thing in Alberta, Canada. Um, That's where a, that Calgary, Alberta area is where they shoot a lot of westerns. Yeah. Like I know Brokeback Mountain was shot there, and also the assassination of Jesse James. Yeah, and uh, you can see why. Because uh, there's a nice contrast to the, to the, uh, of the wide open spaces with the the rainy and gray and foreboding uh, uh, town that is the setting of, of the shootout, and it, it really is interesting. It, it I think that one of the themes that it successfully gets across, uh, and there's several, but the, the one that kind of leaps to mind first is. Um, uh, kind of the, for the lack of a better term, the moral equivalency between the person who's supposed to be the lawman here and the people that are supposed to be the outlaws. And that uh, 
that uh, unenviable position the, the, the prostitutes are in because the law is not going to do its job, right? Mm-hmm. And then they have to go out and hire uh, hired guns to uh, exact retribution and justice for what occurred to one of them. And uh, I, I think underneath the surface there is a, a, a recognition that um, uh, for purposes of justice and perhaps preservation of civilization, there are uh, ugly men that are constitutionally able to do that kind of work. And I, I think the Eastwood character is of all the characters in that film, the one that closest is the closest approach to being one of quote, one of those ugly men that society calls upon to do ugly jobs, but then also wants to kind of push aside and forget about when the job mm-hmm. is done. And um, uh, you, you see that you see that effect on him. He's, he's certainly experienced some of, uh, uh, and I'm not saying he's like a lawman, and he's he's a nasty character, as he mentions, but he's one of those nasty characters that, by happenstance, has fallen on the other side of the law, right? But there are nasty characters that are on the, as it were, the right side of the law, that um, I think are being given a nod here, and yeah, it, it's interestingly complex in that. Um, of the two characters, the lawman, the Gene Hackman character, uh, Little Bill, and the outlaw character, Clint Eastwood's uh, uh, William Money. Money. William Money. Uh, the mon- Money is the one you uh, you end up sympathizing with. It's, it's interesting. Is if on a first viewing, you're thinking, well, you know, maybe the Hackman character here is kind of going to kind of be quote the good guy, the protagonist of this film. But quickly, you you see, he's he's a bully. He's a bully. He revels in his violence in a way that I don't even think the Eastwood character does. Uh, maybe he did in his past, but there's some certain level of reform that's occurred to him because of his marriage with Claudia and his domesticization, as it were, with his two kids. And he doesn't want to go back into that world. He's not prepared to go back into that world. I, I love that scene where after he's decided, yes, I'm going to do this, where he's attempting to reconnect with and energize his shooting skills. And he keeps trying to shoot that can off of that stump with a pistol. Mm-hmm. And he's not able to do it anymore and cause, because he's this he's an old, as it were, retired gunfighter. Can't do it. So what does he do? He grabs the the sawed off off and then, yeah, you don't need much skill to be able to hit that can with the sawed off shotgun. Um, I love that. That, It's Mm -hmm. very symbolic, I think, of of kind of this theme that I'm picking up on here. Another theme I picked up was really the sort of, I guess, emptiness of the vengeance that's being, you know, pursued because the woman that was assaulted and had her face torn up was, her name is Delilah. Yeah. And we never really figure out figure out what exactly it is she wants. Does she wants the vengeance because all these other women are speaking on her behalf? Yeah, and they're the ones that are you know putting forth the bounty. And when the other two try to somewhat make peace, they throw. They're the ones that are throwing rocks at them, and they're the ones that are mocking when people 
attack the house, they say he had it coming and the other one's going to get it too. But when it's her, she's quiet. Yeah. She's going along with it, but you never quite know if this is exactly what she wants. Yeah. Okay, she's uh, she's certainly not the spokes, spokesperson for the group of prostitutes. That 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 role falls on Strawberry Alice, who uh, in, in a way is is the protective figure for that group, and, and in a way. Uh, the guarantor of justice for that group, but and, and she's interestingly coarse in a way that uh, the uh, the male characters are. Uh, her language throughout is you know, shocking, coming mm-hmm. from a female or uh, from the males. You'd think, well, that's that's just the old West. That's the way they talk. Um, it's, 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 it's expected with them from her. It's a little shocking, even in a 1992 film. Um, but again, she serves a useful purpose. Again, she is somebody that is probably necessary for the survival of that group of women because they are, uh, uh, treated very clearly in this film. It's, it's, I, I give Eastwood credit for really emphasizing this point. They are treated as property by the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the saloon owner and uh, little Bill, and that's what's so infuriating to them. Uh, little Bill basically tells those two, you know, if you give us enough ponies because you damaged property, it's like replacing that property. Uh, that's good enough for me. Strawberry Alice is rightfully uh, uh, correctly indignant about that and then it's her decision to hire the guns to exact the revenge and justice um and you do get the feeling maybe delilah is uncomfortable with that and doesn't want to speak up and maybe she she could think of some other solution but she feels it's not her place oddly enough as the victim to speak up because uh there is an obligation to protect the group and she she perceives that Strawberry Alice is doing what is essentially the only thing you can do in that kind of lawless atmosphere out there to protect that group. Hire that gun, uh, demonstrate to other would-be attackers the consequences of, of uh, attacks they may be considering, and get that message out. And it is true because if you... Look at the history of the West. Well, prostitution was one of the most profitable businesses in a lot of boomtown mining areas and the cowboy areas. They were one of the most profitable businesses. But even with the profit, they did not treat the women who were in those, you know, like it's shown in this movie as human beings. They probably, there were a lot of that probably would have were killed in crossfires and gunfights or by angry customers. And the law would not. Because their prostitutes would not give them the full, you know, treatment they would if it was a regular citizen. If they were, it was just yeah. a female's regular female citizen who ran like a shop or something. Yeah. They would be more. They would have been more cared about her than they would about these because of their profession. Yeah, and it, you know, it's an underground economy, and in, in an underground economy, you very you don't have easy recourse to the legal system because what you're doing is illegal itself. And you see this uh, not only in the Wild West in the United States, but it's a very common problem today uh, with uh, people that are 
prostitutes or in the drug business or in uh, operating in some other corners of the black market. Um, so what do they do? They have to take, as it were, retribution and justice into their own hands uh, when they feel that they've been slighted, cheated, uh, uh, unjustly treated, something like that. Uh, and they will do that. And uh, in that case, I mean, a good, it's, a, it's a very good illustration of that being the case in the West. And it's interesting. It's one of the arguments that has been put forth in favor of legalizing prostitution because it takes it out of that underground realm and makes it possible to, for the establishment legal system to protect them. And as, as we know, it's not a, a state or two in the U.S. has done that. And we talk about the set in the American West and these issues. Um, one of the things that makes me think that this could this just could be set almost anywhere at any time period is back in 2013, there was a Japanese remake where it's I've seen it. It's pre, it's pretty much beat for beat the same story with a few things. It's set in the. Uh, Meiji era restoration yeah. in the late 1860s. That was when sort of the emperor was coming back to power, but it was a time of violence. And the character, who's funny enough, is played by Ken Watanabe, who worked with Clint Eastwood on Letters from Iwo Jima. Yeah. He's the Clint Eastwood character. He was a samurai, but there's that same reputation of violence and the beats for in everything else. But it makes me think because of that, this story, even though it is. In the West, it could be almost anywhere. Certainly can, and it's interesting you bring up the the, the, the Meiji uh, period and the history of the samurai uh, uh, warriors and the clan warfare that was uh, endemic in J- in Japan. Certainly in the 1600s, there's a very interesting, I think, parallel there too, in uh, in the in the fact that. Uh, during that period of clan warfare, it was very much like the Wild West over there. There's a very close comparison where um, uh, there were areas of that country because the clans were fighting over them and the power was going back and forth that there was, in essence, no legal system. So what you ended up having to do as uh, citizens was trying to figure out who, who the winning side would be in in uh, uh, stand back on the sidelines and kind of wait for the conflict to end and then and then align yourself with that group. Um, and unfortunately, what often happened with the samurai uh, bands that did the fighting is they, they engaged in atrocities on uh, towns or city, town or city folk that had, in their perceptions, aligned themselves with the other clan. And there's this very famous tapestry in... Uh, uh, the Osaka Castle, that or it's not a tapestry; it's a painting um, that shows one of these battles going on between the Tokugawa uh, show, uh, before they had established that shogunate and the Togatami clan. And it's it's a it's a series of paintings that shows battles and looked at. If you kind of look at it, draw back and look at the whole, it looks like it's just a painting of a standard battle scene. But if you kind of zoom in and look at the details, you'll see them doing things that um, uh, uh, William Mooney, Money has admitted to as well. Uh, killing women and children, beheading uh, uh, defenseless 
and uh, unarmed uh, combatants and non-combatants. It's interesting that they included these things in these paintings that were produced after the fact. It's almost like it's an admission. Look, in the civilizing process that we underwent, uh, we have to admit these kinds of things occurred. And I think that's part of the message in these kind of revisionist Westerns about America. Again, the theme of rough men. It's sometimes necessary to have rough men in the long run, as it were, to get your civilization up and running. And occasionally we have to recur to their work to preserve it. That's an uncomfortable message, but I think an important one for us to remember. Continuing more with that Japan-American West connection, um, obviously, keeping with Eastwood, um, Yojimbo was a famous samurai movie, which was remade just a few years later into the the Western that made Eastwood's career with a fistful of dollars. And that was his famous Man With No Name trilogy, which I'm very familiar with. I feel like because this is Eastwood again, this is almost a continuation of that character, because when you watch those movies... He's not exactly the most, purposely the most, uh, you know, straightforward guy. He kind of plays people off each other. He kills a bunch of people. He probably kills more people than uh, John Wayne in any particular movie. Yeah. And it's, but he's not necessarily the good guy. Yeah, his motives are at best mixed. At best mixed. And it's interesting if you you contrast those earlier films with Mm -hmm. this one. Um, it does seem like uh, that's it's it's a natural response to this film. It does seem like this character in this film is literally the older version of <laughs> of the man with no name. Um, he's he's past that time where he's served his purpose for the villagers, perhaps protecting themselves from the bandits or whatever, right? And so, what is it? He's he's out in the middle of nowhere, living on the ranch raising the pigs, raising the kids, and, uh, uh, as it were, past his expiration date. But then there is this unpleasant reminder, again, that the, such men are never quite past their expiration date because um, civilization is uh, fragile. And sometimes, as uncomfortable it is, as it is for us to admit, we need those rough men to do rough kinds of jobs. And if- one of the uh, for all we talk about how despicable a lot of these characters are, and I think one character who is also very despicable, although he never has any hands in any of the killings, is the writer of Beauchamp. Yeah, because he's riding along originally with English Bob, and he's telling a lot of lies and taking English Bob's basically uh, face value all of these stories and perpetuating these lies, particularly of how he killed this one guy in an honorable gunfight to save this woman's virtue. When it was actually English Bob was acting very cowardly, yeah. And then, um, but once he sort of little Bill sort of dresses down English Bob, Beauchamp just moves on. He doesn't has no interest in English Bob because he doesn't serve his purpose. And now he wants to write about little Bill, and yeah. he's basically saying little Bill's going to be his next story, his next book. And then after little Bill gets killed. He starts talking to William Money, and now he says, I could be your biographer at the end. And eventually Money says no, but it just, he doesn't really, he could care less, I think, about all he's scared. But yeah. He doesn't really care about all the people that are getting killed or what's really going on. Yeah. He just sees people as attempt to 
make money off their fame. Yeah. He, he's an interesting combination of a voyeur and an entrepreneurial. Uh, and there were yeah. a lot of guys like that. I mean, yeah. Jesse James, uh, Wild Bill Hickok, Buffalo Bill, Billy the Kid. They had There were dime novels written about them yeah. all over around this time. Period. And it, it, it perfectly encapsulate that. And we had talked about that same theme with... The uh, coward that, what's the name the of that? Assassination song? of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I know uh, it's quite a mouthful. It is quite a mouthful. And for someone damn near 60 years old, I can't remember that title. But it, that theme was in there too. And it, it's a very interesting uh, aspect of this film. And notice it did it before that film did it as mm-hmm. well. And I think Rubinick does a great job with that character, uh, kind of illustrating that, um, that, uh, the motivational um, complexity of the guy. And it's interesting. I was reading it, that, watching that same interview where he was talking about how quickly um, uh, Clint Eastwood works when he directs, but he, he also approached him. He said, you know, the script says that my character is afraid. I don't feel that's quite right. I want to, I want to play him as a little bit swaggering, but, swaggering because he's really never seen anything like this happen before. And I want to make him uh, consider himself to be somewhat of an expert. But then once the reality hits, I want to show him as kind of a coward and afraid. And they do that in that scene when he's watching uh, little Bill dress down English, uh, English Bob, yeah. right? Um, and again, that was, uh, he, he, I guess he, he was not used to approaching directors and being, uh, them being so accepting of suggestions. And I guess Eastwood's got a great reputation for that. Um, and it works in that film because it, it captures that kind of, um, uh, complexity of these PR driven writers that were, kind of a part of the furniture in that time period in the U.S. And they actually survived into the 20th century with uh, so-called yellow journalism. A lot of the same writers would do that kind of yellow journalism, write these simplistic accounts of things like the the uh, explosion on the main, for instance, and, and um, uh, uh, consequences accrued from the, sim- the simplistic tales they told. So he, a neat little character. He doesn't have a lot to say in the film, really, but it is interesting. You, you notice that progression. He's just going to latch on to whoever he thinks he can get the juicy stories out so he can write his dime novels, and that progress stops with William Money. I don't think he wants anything to do with it. He kind of recognizes the despicability of the practice, and he says, nah, get out of here. I'm going to go back to San Francisco with my kids. All right. Getting close to the end of my questions here. Is there anything else you want to bring up? Um, so this, up until this year, was the last uh, Western that Clint Eastwood has starred in. But he had just uh, in a, uh, less than a month, he's got a new movie out called Cry Macho. And this is not set in the Old West. It's set... I think in the contemporary, but it's set in the West, which is modern setting. Yeah. And from what I heard, he's a cow, old time cowboy hand. He's got to uh, get this kid back to his parents from the Mex from Mexico. And uh, and this apparent this is a famous novel. I haven't read it, but they had been trying to make this into a movie since the seventies. I think they originally wanted William Holden 
hmm. to play that character. And the, the 80s, they were considering Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I'm not sure if I buy Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> as a cowboy. But anyway, um, I, I'm curious to see it. I've yeah. always, I'm, Eastwood has always liked all the other westerns he did. Obviously, The Man with No Name, but the ones he, other ones he directed, like uh, Josie Wales, Pale Rider, High Plains Drifter. Yeah. He's, I'm, I'm curious to it'll, see it. Uh, hopefully it'll be good. And it's interesting that this thing was sitting around since the 70s, because that's kind of what happened with the script for this film, too. He acquired the rights from it, I think, from Zoetrope, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. And he he just looked at the script and said, you know what? I'm too young to do this right now. It, it calls for an old man. Uh, so he threw it in a drawer <laughs> and occasionally would pull it out and look at it. And then eventually said, you know what? I'm about old enough to do this film now. Uh, so I'm wondering, curious if the backstory with this particular macho, what's the name of it again? Cry Macho. Uh, I'm curious if the... Uh, backstory with Cry Macho is, is is similar. It's interesting that script goes back that far. Yeah, I'm curious. I hope, I hope it's good. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I am Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.